Good morning. Good to see you. Get your Bible. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. And let's talk for a few minutes about Nehemiah's determination. We're in the fifth week of a series of character lessons. And week one, we talked about Simeon's blessing. You remember that? And we talked about Achan's disaster and then Abram's decision. And then last week, Solomon's charge. And today, Nehemiah's determination. And this is also the 10th anniversary of the fire that burned down our former sanctuary building that was 10 years ago this coming Tuesday. Nehemiah 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 20 says, The God of heaven will give us success. And I answered them, We, his servants, are going to rebuild. You have no property or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. You're going to see how by the end of this uh, next few minutes, that passage applies to your own individual life. I, I'll never forget that day um, 10 years ago. It's amazing to me, first of all, to, to imagine that that was 10 years ago. How many of you were here during that time? Does it seem like it was 10 years ago? Uh, wow, I mean, this time is just flying by, isn't it? I remember it was nine degrees outside. It was so cold. Uh, and I was standing right down here in the parking lot watching all those fire trucks dump water on that building trying to put that out. And that water, as soon as it hit the parking lot, would just turn to a solid sheet of ice. And within a couple of hours, the whole parking lot had run all the way down to Building C, and it was just a solid sheet of ice. And I remember all the church folks who were trying to get here because they were just in major shock, and and um, people wanted to come here to pray together and to, and uh, to cry and to watch and and how that uh, about halfway into it, it got so slick that some of the fellows were actually helping to carry people uh, from the side parking lots over to the gym where the people were standing and watching out of the glass. And we went into what we laughingly later on referred to as fire mode. Fire mode is fun mode. And uh, we've been in fire mode a couple of times since, but never to quite that extent. We scrambled on that Wednesday morning to figure out where we were going to put all of us that coming Sunday. Uh, because we had, we still had all three buildings, but when you lose about almost 20,000 square feet of your facilities in one fell swoop, and we had to figure out where we were going to put us all and by that following Sunday the Lord had helped us and we had the, the gym set up as a sanctuary and we moved in there for the next year year and a half something like that um, and we sat on those folding metal chairs you remember that they were the new they were new and nice but man after about a year year and a half of those chairs it didn't matter how new and nice they were and those of us that can still remember, can remember the very first Sunday we were in this sanctuary and we sat down in these chairs after the ones we'd been sitting on. And we were like, oh, this is so nice. Uh, we were in uh, 
I wouldn't say a panic, but it certainly was a strange set of emotions to go from being in the sanctuary that we had, which was so nice and had been built in the in the 70s. We had remodeled that facility a couple of times, but that sanctuary was just, it was just a really unique sanctuary. And about six months before that fire, Deb and I had married off our baby girl in that place. And so uh, when we stood there watching all of that burn down, along with the rest of the church family, there were a lot of tears and a lot of stories about memories of who all had been married there and how many funerals had happened there and the amazing services that we had experienced in that building and just on and on and on and on and on. And it was hard on that day for us to imagine that we would ever experience such wonderful things again. But haven't we in the last 10 years? And I remember the passage of Scripture that talked about the glory of the latter shall be greater than the former. And preaching those messages back then about right, uh, oaks of righteousness and, and how that there would be beauty for ashes and how that the Lord was going to bring something beautiful out of that. And, and, and people at the time would look at me with, with kindness and tears and, and those little smiles that said, thank you for trying, Pastor, but in our hearts we know it's never going to be the same. I looked at that for quite some time. I watched that in people's eyes for quite a while uh, when I would convince them of where we were going, when they just couldn't quite see what this was going to be. But I sat down a few days ago and I started evaluating what the Lord's done here in the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, there have been probably over 1,200 people that have come to know Christ, made decisions to follow Christ uh, since we have been in the new building and in the different ministries, not just in the sanctuary, but in the different ministries of our church. And, 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 and in 10 years, I, I guess that, um, I guess we've probably been on probably at least 15, closer to 20 missions trips. I remember one of the first messages that I preached, I think it was the very first Sunday I preached after the fire in the gym. And I knew the people were wondering, what are we going to do now? And in that message, I, I told the people I wasn't quite sure what it was going to look like here for the next few months. But I said, we have a missions trip. That was, in Feb that was January going into February. And we had a missions trip to go to Honduras in March. And I said, I'm not quite sure what all is going to happen. But here's what I do know. We're still going to Honduras because there's people there that need us and are in worse shape than we are. And I remember our commitment to missions and our commitment to the mission itself never waned and we continued to move on and and it's been miraculous now as you just sit there listening to me and start thinking about what all has happened in your life in the last 10 years how many things has god done and what have you seen him do in the last 10 years so uh, when i read this text it reminds me of that day there was never even a thought in in our mind that we were going to give up or that we were going to quit or that we were not going to rebuild but there were a lot of questions and I remember having a discussion uh, one day with one of our deacons, and I told him, I said, I'm not going to be one of those, and I'm not talking bad about anybody or bragging on myself, certainly don't take it that way, but I said, I, I, I can't be, I've never been, nor can I be one of those pastors that just builds a big building and, and, and saddles people with a bunch of debt and then uses that new building as a platform to move to something bigger and better. I said, I, I can't be that guy. I said... I, I'm in this place of making a decision. I know this is where I'm supposed to be, but this is a huge undertaking. And if we go 
out on a limb and we build this building and we take on the responsibility of that and this debt, I am not leaving. My commitment at that point is going to be until we are strong again because I can't be that guy that, that, uh, that uses that as a platform to do something bigger and better. And, and, uh, and I remember uh, there, there, there may have been some individuals that thought maybe we shouldn't build at the time, but maybe you should just take the money and, and, and put it and let it draw interest until there was enough there to build a building. But, but uh, that would have taken such a long time, and the congregation was starting to get discouraged, and, and it was starting to go downhill because people were getting tired of sitting on the metal chairs and meeting in a gym. And so uh, I knew that that was a decision that I or somebody needed to make pretty fast and, uh, and knew that if that was something that I made the decision to do, that my commitment needed to be strong. It needed to be for a long period of time. And so before I really get into this, I want to show you something because it's going to make sense. I want you to see some pictures. I want to show you the day of the fire, what we were looking at uh, around here. Some of you may have never seen this before, but that that's what it looked like in the early stages of the fire, it got a lot worse than that, but, but that's what it looked like in the early stages. And then I want to show you a picture of what it looked like a couple of months later. We, stood, we had to look at that for three to four months every day because of insurance purposes. We couldn't knock it down. And so every time we came to church, guys, every time we came to church, we drove past that on the sides to get back to the gym. This is what everybody saw from Rolling Hills. This is who we were in the eyes of everybody for about probably six months after that fire. This is what it was. And if you think it looked bad, you should have smelled it. It's unbelievable what a fire like that smells like and anything that comes out of it, what it smells like. Now I want to show you a picture of what happened after a couple of years of faith and perseverance and prayer and not giving up. That is the result of that same shot, that same place, same sign, same position from the road. Now, I'm not showing that to you for any other reason than this. I I want you to realize that these pictures represent the progression of what Nehemiah's determination in your life can look like in time to come. Here's where I'm going with that. Some of you would say to me, well, pastor, I'm, I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. I, I'm, I'm discouraged. I don't really see any real future in my life. If I had to describe myself per one of those pictures, I would describe myself as either number one, burning out, or number two, burnout. That's how I feel in my life. I, I don't feel like number three. I feel like one or two of those pictures. And I, when I make a statement to you that the latter can be greater than the former, some of you would have a difficult time believing that today, just like some of us had a hard time believing that 10 years ago on this Sunday or the Sunday to come. You think my life is just pretty much a burnt out shell. It's ugly. It stinks. There's nothing there of value. There's nothing there of real purpose. And I don't know how I'm going to get from 
burning or burn out to glory. How am I going to get there? It's going to take the determination of Nehemiah to make that happen. Understand the context. Let me take you back there and I'm going to walk you down this road for a few minutes. Nehemiah was serving as the cupbearer to a foreign king. A foreign king. He heard about the conditions of his homeland. He heard about how that Jerusalem, the walls had been knocked down and the gates had been burned down by fire. And it broke his heart. And God began to give him a burden to lead a charge to set things right. I can read this to you faster than I can tell you. So I'm going to walk you through a few verses very quickly, starting back in Nehemiah chapter 1. In verse 2, Nehemiah said, One of my brothers arrived with some men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews who had survived captivity and about Jerusalem, and they told me those who survived captivity are in the province, and they're enduring serious troubles and being insulted, and the wall's been broken down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and cried. I mourned for days. I continued to fast and pray to the God of heaven. Skip to chapter 2, verse 7. This is after morning of crying, fasting. I also asked the king, if it pleases your majesty, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River. And then the letters tell them to grant me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Also, let me have a letter addressed to Asaph, the supervisor of your majesty's force. The letter give in the letter, order him to give me wood for the gates of the fortress near the temple, for the city wall and for the house I'll move into. And the king let me have the letters because God was guiding me. Look down to verse 16. But the officials... Of Jerusalem, didn't know where I had gone or what I had done, and I hadn't yet told the Jews, the priests, the leaders, the other officials, or any of the rest who would be doing the work. And then I told them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem's in ruins. Its gates are burned down. Let's rebuild the wall so we'll stop being insulted. And then I told them that my God had been guiding me and what the king had told me, and they replied, well, let's begin to build. And so they encouraged one another and began to begin this God-pleasing work. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they made fun of us and ridiculed us and they asked, what are you doing? Are you going to rebel against the king? And then our text that I read to you a minute ago kicks in. I answered them, the God of heaven will give us success. We're his servants and we're going to rebuild. You have no property or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. This determination of Nehemiah came as a result of a burden that was given to him by God and then a a measure of faith that was also given to him to do it at all costs. No matter what it takes, there's a commitment here in Nehemiah that he's going to do this and it's going to be the same for you. It's going to take the same for you. You're going to have to enter into this venture knowing in your heart and believing in your soul that this is God's work. Your life, what he's saying to you, that this is God's work, this is God's will, this, whatever that might be, whether that for you is getting your life right, or whether it's starting and building some kind of a ministry, or or whether it's trying to, God's telling you to love some unlovable person, 
Whatever it is, you're going to have to realize, first of all, that it's God calling you and it's God's work. And then there's going to have to be that same kind of a determination in your spirit and in your soul to say, well, if this is God's work, then he's going to make it. He, he can do it. and He's going to do it. And I'm going to do my part and I'm not going to quit. It's going to take that same determination. That was the determination that, that we had when we built the building that you're sitting in right now. We didn't have the money to build it. We didn't have the congregation base to finance it. We had to proceed in spite of all of the devil's attempts to discourage us. We had to push forward. We had to trust God. And you're going to have to do the same thing. And here's how you start with that. You have to start with this. You go but look at the text. Start with this unyielding belief. Put your finger on whatever it is that's causing you to feel like photo number one or two. Now think in your head and in your heart, what is it that God told you? What is it that God promised you? What is it that God called you to do, okay? Now think about, here's where you are, but here's what he said. And you see the distance in between. And then you'll have to start with this unyielding belief to get from photo one or two to photo three. You're going to have to start with the same thing that Nehemiah started with, and it was this. He said, the God of heaven will give us success. That's the first thing you're going to have to get in your mind, get in your heart, and get in your spirit. To go to photo one, two, to three, you're going to have to start with the idea, the unyielding belief the God of heaven is going to give us success. This is God's will. This is God's work. And we're doing it his way. So he is going to give us success. Now we cannot foresee how. This, we have no idea how we could get from. That's how we were when we looked two or three months after the fire. That burned out carcass. We could not imagine how we as a little church were going to get from that to photo three, it was gonna it was gonna require a miraculous move of the hand of God because there's no way we could do it. We didn't have the money. We did we 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 couldn't borrow enough money, guys. Turned out to be a. I think we said it turned out to be close to a four and a half million dollar project, with a congregation of three hundred and fifty people that had a that had dwindled down. To I think about 267 of us left on the last Sunday sitting in those metal chairs. And how were we going to take on that kind of debt? Turned out we didn't have to because the Lord provided in miraculous ways. And I'm not going to go into all of that. But we started with that unyielding belief once we made a commitment that yes, God did want to build and yes, God did want to do amazing things and we weren't going to quit until he did. We started with that unyielding belief that God had called us and we were going to do it. Somehow he was going to give us success. And then secondly, Nehemiah said, we, his servants, are going to rebuild. We're going to do it. Again, don't know how. God has promised success, and we're going to do it. That's going to take that in your individual life. God has called me to this. God, is, as, as God has positioned me for this, and he's going to give me success in this area, and I'm going to do it. I don't know how, but I know I'm going to. 
I don't know what 10 years from now looks like, but I'm going to do this somehow. This is going to happen. So you, you start with those two unyielding beliefs based on what the Lord has said to you. And from that point on, you begin to remind the devil of the following three things. And this is where I'm going with this this morning. You need to write these down. Because between then and when photo three takes place, there's going to be mighty onslaughts of the devil to discourage you, to distract you, to hinder you. Everything he can think of, he's going to try to do to keep you off track. Life is going to happen to you. Guess what? In 10 years, in 10 years period of time, while we were building, while we were working, while we were sacrificing, we were still having to go to funerals. We were still having to go to hospitals. Life was still happening. And it would have been very easy to get discouraged and just say, Man, we just can't, we just can't keep fighting this battle. But there were three things that we had to say to the devil. And there are these three things that you're going to have to say to the devil to get you from photo one, photo two, to photo three in your individual life. Are you still with me? Wave at me if you're still with me. Get ready and write these down. Number one, you're going to have to remind the devil over and over, however long it takes, Devil, you have no property in Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah said. You have no property in Jerusalem. And he say, well, that doesn't make sense. We, we don't have any property in Jerusalem. Why would I tell the devil he, that he has no property in Jerusalem? I mean, we're talking about my life. Okay, we're talking about your life. You are the property of God, just like Jerusalem is the property of God. Your marriage, your family, your finances, your health, Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Once you accept that, refer to what Pastor Kyle said earlier, once you begin to trust the Lord in that, your life's, that part of it's going to become much easier. Once you accept the fact that everything you have is simply being loaned to you from God, it would be much easier for you to turn loose of it if you need to. Somebody say amen and I'll move on. The reason that we fight so hard to control, not just money, but in every area of our life, the reason people fight so hard to regain control or to retain control of things in their life is because of a motive based in fear. Control is always about fear. It's the opposite of trust. Perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love causes you to trust the Lord complicitly, completely. Lord, I trust you with my health. That means if the devil says I'm going to die, I can laugh at him at that point and say, I won't die unless God wants me to because I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price and you don't have control over that. Makes your life so much easier to live. It makes tithes and offering time pleasant instead of a drudgery. 
Oh, the man said it's time to give our tithes. Awesome. God, here's here's 10% of that 100% you gave me on Friday. Thank you. I get to keep 90. That's amazing that you're going to let me keep 90% of your money. And I'm going to give 10% to finance your work. Our life becomes much simpler when we turn loose of control of everything in our life. So the reason that you try so hard to control your family is because you fear that if you don't keep a thumb on them, they're going to make things so bad for themselves and for you that God can't fix it. That's why some of you moms and dads don't sleep on Friday night. Worried about whether them kids are going to come in and what condition when they get there will they be in. That's your responsibility, be concerned about your kids. But I'm going to tell you something. When you get to the place that you can turn them over to God, say, Lord, I gave them to you when they were babies. They're not mine, they're yours. I'm praying for them. I want the best for them. I'm believing the best for them. But since I can't control the decisions they will make, I'm going on to bed. Make your life a lot easier. Devil, you can't touch my marriage, my family, my money, my health, because it belongs to God. You don't have any property here. You have to tell the devil every day. Every word I speak, every breath I breathe, every action I take is for God. It's God's and it's not for you, devil. It's all God's. Nehemiah's determination was in part a claim over God's stuff. We need to tell the devil, you have no property here. If we really start believing that, it's going to change the way we live our lives. We'll quit living so much in fear, and our prayers would even sound different. Our prayers are always so desperate. Oh, God. Oh, God. He's like, settle down. Wow. God, someone in my family 40 years ago got cancer. I think I might have it too. God's like, time out. Don't speak something onto yourself that you don't already have. Don't lay claim to things that might not ever happen. Quit living in fear. Tell the devil, this is all God's. Whatever you do to this, you'll have to go through him to do. And if he allows it, it's up to him because I'm his. But I'm not going to live my life in fear. You have no property in Jerusalem. Number two, you have no claim in Jerusalem. This one means that the devil has no right to be here. It's not, that he, it's not just that he doesn't own the place, but he doesn't even have a right to be here. This is what you're going to have to tell the devil if you want to go from photograph one, two, to three. In that process to get from there to here, you're going to have to tell the devil those things. You have no property here. Number two, you have no claim here. I love this. I want you to remember this the next time the devil comes around. And you tell him, you don't have any right to be here. This is God's space. 
get out of this place. Have you ever, some of y'all remember this, if you've ever been around a farm at all and seen a hen house? You ever seen an old dog sucking eggs? You ever caught a dog sucking eggs? Some of you are like, what is that? Where the dog would get over the hen house and shoo the chickens away and suck and just start sucking the eggs and eating the eggs. And, and if you come out and you holler, get out of there. You know what the dog looks like? That tail shoot between his legs. You hunker down. You remember that? You, you ever seen that, the picture? That's the way the devil looks when the scripture said, resist the devil and he would flee. Run him off like an egg-sucking dog. Can't you see that picture now? I can't do that. I'm afraid of him. He scares me. He's mean to me. He does bad things. He's always tearing up our hen house. And I'm saying to you that if you get this scripture, get this word in your spirit, that when the devil comes around trying to tear up the hen house... You tell him, get in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, you have to go. It's what it's going to take to get from there to there. You'll have to tell him that lots of times. Because he'll keep coming around, trying to use fear as a distraction. But remember, we're not going to, he doesn't have any property. He doesn't have any property here. He doesn't have any claim here. So we, we, we have the ability to speak the name of Jesus, and he has to go. He doesn't have any right. Listen to this. He doesn't have any right to be in your family or in your business. When he gets in your family or your business, he starts getting in your relationships. He has gotten in the hen house, and it's time for you to use the name of Jesus to send him running. Instead of you cowering around and hiding... And letting him wreak havoc in every area of your life. Start using the word of God and speaking the name of Jesus and send him on his way. I'm going to keep preaching whether you say amen or not. Don't matter to me because I'm telling you the truth. Nehemiah was determined he was going to hold God's ground. He said even if we have to, and turned out they did have to. Even if we're going to have to work with, with a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other, which is what they ended up having to do. The enemy kept coming trying to knock down the wall while they were rebuilding it. And these guys would, would, would use a trowel in one hand, hold a weapon in the other, and fight the devil while they were building. You're going to have to do the same thing. The devil's not going to let you just build this perfect life or build this building or build this relationship without trying to come against you at every turn and every measure that he can. You're going to have to fight him that way. But they didn't allow the distraction to cause them all to just be standing around with weapons looking over, over a half-built wall. That's how, people, that's how people live in their spiritual life a lot of times. They get the wall started. The devil comes against them. They lay down the trowel. They pick up the weapons and they just stand behind a half-built wall. For years, for years some people stand around holding a weapon. Don't even see a devil. Just stand around holding a weapon. He shows up, I'll be ready. No, you won't. Your wall's not built. The defenses aren't built. You're not finished with the job. You got a job to do. Hmm. And thirdly, Nehemiah said, you have no history in Jerusalem. And you say, okay, well, pastor, I was with you up until this point, but I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Jerusalem now. 
So some of you think politically. They're saying you, had, you were making your point till you got to here. But those poor folks in Jerusalem now, they, they do have a right to be there. Those poor Palestinians, they have a right to be. Well, first of all, there wasn't even such a thing as a Palestinian until World War II. I won't preach a lot of politics to you, but let me set you straight on something historically. For those of you that are feeling sorry for the folks that can't get a two-state situation in Jerusalem. For those of you that feel sorry for those poor folks that are wanting to lay claim to the city of Jerusalem. So that they can have that as their state capital. You say, well, pastor, they were there before the Israelites. Let me tell you something about that. Jerusalem was never Jerusalem until David made it that. And David was not a Palestinian. The city of Jerusalem was the city of Jabus. The people that lived there were the Jebusites. They were some of the ites that Israel was supposed to run off. And when David got there, he ran them off took over the city, and what he and Solomon and every other Israeli leader built there from the next thousand years, the enemy had nothing to do with. The reason that city prospered the way that it did and was fortified and built up the way that it was and turned into the place that it became was because God himself said, I choose that city and I choose those people and I'm going to dwell there with those people. Now he dwells, the Holy Spirit dwells in us today. We understand that. I'm just telling you historically what was going on. God chose that as a city where he would reside and where he would bless. But here's how the devil works. And I'm not calling Palestinian people the devil. I'm not trying to say that to you at all. Everybody needs to be somewhere. Everybody has a place that they should be. We believe that everybody should come and know Christ. But for those individuals who are displaced at this point, why won't all of those... Uh, this is just a question for me. Maybe I need to step over here. My question is that why won't all of those other Arab nations that are huge allow that small little group of people to have the same little spot they're asking for in one of their countries? So that Israel wouldn't have to constantly be using the Iron Dome to keep themselves from getting blown up by their neighbors next door. I'm trying to say something to you. It's not political at all. I just told, just told you that part so you'd understand and quit feeling sorry for. You need to understand the difference between the way God works and the devil works. Oh, I hope you listen for the next couple of minutes. Jesus is about forgiveness. The devil is about fairness. So the devil will say, it's not fair. Jesus will say, it's not just. Fair means, uh-oh, hang on. Here's where the liberals start shooting. The devil says... It's fair that people should have the right to decide whether or not babies live. 
not about fairness at all. It's about forgiveness. Jesus comes along and says, if you sin, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to love you. But I'm never going to tell you that what you call fair is just. Sin will always be sin. Pastor, we were born this way. Okay, all I know is that all of us have something that we are predisposed to that we have to crucify every day. So a person that says to me, Pastor, I have a same-sex attraction to someone. It's fair that I should be able to live that out. And nobody should, in fairness, be able to say otherwise because that means they're politically incorrect, they're biased, they're racist, they're, bad, they're biggest, they're everything they can name, they are deplorable. But Jesus says, whether your problem is drugs or alcohol or homosexuality or pornography or gambling or whatever it is, let a man deny himself, take up his cross and follow me daily. So Jesus doesn't condemn the sinner. He only condemns the sin, the action of sin. So Jesus says, while the world is saying, it's fair, don't judge me. Let me do what I want to do and don't be mean to me no more. Jesus says, we never meant to be mean to you before. We're just pointing out the fallacy of your logic and telling you that what you're saying isn't fair is actually sin. And we're saying that as long as you will crucify that daily and take up your cross like we are, We'll forgive you. We're not passing judgment. Pastor, I never thought about it that way before. You're saying that a person that has same-sex attraction is okay as long as they don't live that out and they follow Christ. I don't understand why that has happened, but I'm certainly not going to condemn them for the way they feel or think. But I will say to them that they must deny that sinful action, same as you must not commit that sinful action in your life that tells you, let's get drunk. Because all of us in this room, let's not throw rocks. Everybody in this room's got something. We go down the line. Everybody in here have to say, well, here's what I struggle with. Here's what I struggle with. Here's what I struggle with. It's sin, 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 sin. There's a whole room full of sinners and everybody in this room probably thought about your sin at some point this week and was even tempted at some point to go back to it. But the decision is, God, I'm going to do the best I can because Jesus will forgive me. The devil will say, we need to make it fair. Jesus will say, we need to forgive the sin. Err. Jesus will say, no matter what your sin or how you fail, I still love you. I'm going to receive you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to stone you. I'm not going to throw you away. I'm going to love you and include you. You will be a part of the family. The church reaches out and says to everybody, you're a part of the family. We love you. We want you here. But the devil says to sinners, get mad at the church because they're unfair. And the church says, why are you getting angry with us? We all had to confront our sin too. Our Jesus forgives you and so do we. 
come on. Come on. We're not exclusive. We are inclusive. I want you to see that because I don't, I, I don't hear anybody saying what I just said. I don't hear that. I see two sides and standing off and throwing rocks apart for, across at each other. I don't hear anybody saying this. I think this is a good way to sum it up. You may not agree with me. You may have your own way. Maybe you can say it better than what I'm saying. But in my mind, this works. Doesn't it work for you to say that, doesn't it make sense that for everything that Christians are being blamed for and ridiculed for and insulted for, the motive for all of that comes from people who are saying we aren't fair. We're not fair, but we're forgiving. And we all got here the same way. So when, Nehemiah, when, when Sanballat and Tobiah came to Nehemiah and they said, we were here first. Nehemiah's like, it don't matter. It don't matter when the devil got here. It doesn't matter when he got here. It never was his. Somebody say amen. Don't matter when he showed up. Don't matter when he started trying to lay claim. Don't matter how many walls of his own he's built. It don't make any difference. Everything he did in Jerusalem was not his to do. I have no history here. You're quiet, but I know you're listening. Should we be quiet and allow untold sins to be overlooked under the guise of fair? And here's what you're hearing from political correctness today. It's only fair so long as it gives the devil everything he wants and the church is silent. You ever notice that? Free speech is for everybody but Christians. Devil, all you have is a history of trying to steal God's stuff and God's people. And none of this world was ever the devil's. It was always the property of God our Father. I want you to hear this. Your life, your home, your church, your body is not the property of anyone other than your Father God's. Man, your life will become so much simpler when you embrace that. Hear this statement. I'm about to conclude. I know you're ready. You take about all you take. You've been really nice doing it. No telling what will be on Facebook this week. Nehemiah's determination will require that you find your voice and start using it again. Not in anger. Because we're not angry at people, are we? But I hate the devil. He's been bad to me. He's never done anything good for me. Everything bad that ever happened in my life was the result of the devil. It wasn't God. I'm not mad at God. God's been the one that's loved me and brought me through everything. God isn't my enemy. Everything that has ever happened to me that was bad, that was meant for destruction, came as a result of the devil who came to steal, kill, and destroy. And I don't like him. Michael fought with him and was told that we, King James, 
durst not bring railing accusation against him. Somebody get with me after church and tell me what durst means. That we durst not bring, which means that I can't go around calling him the names I want to. I'm going to tell you something. I think some bad things about the devil. And I have been known to call him some things from time to time. I'll tell you something. If some of these folks would get more excited about cussing the devil than they are about using God's name as a cuss word. Somebody say amen. I'm talking church folks now. Oh my God. Every single thing they say. For Jesus Christ. Pierces my heart. Instead the next time you want to. You want to make some kind of an exclamation. And you get angry. You smash your finger. Instead of saying God something. I could tell you what you should say. But I don't think we're supposed to say those words. But I would always tag the devil on it. Whatever expletive I would put with it, it would be directed to the devil, not at Jesus Christ. Because I don't like the devil. He's been good to me. He's been mean to me. He ain't done nothing good for me. He's tried to destroy me. I believe it's time for the church to find their voice again. And remember, we are not angry at people, but we hate the devil. And it's time to shout. You have no history here. You can't keep up bring it, keep bringing up my sins. You don't have any history here. You can't keep bringing up my sins and my failures and my struggles. I'll tell you a story. So this pastor, he was kind of like some of us. He had a very terrible, sinful past. And sometimes he struggled with it. Even though he knew that he had repented of his sins, there were still times he struggled with his past. There was a lady in his church that was seemingly used of the Holy Spirit lots of times. She would use that gift to tell people things that she would hear from God. God told me this, God told me that, God told me that. It seemed like that what she was saying was true. But the pastor heard it so much. He heard her all the time using that gift. And he'd hear other people saying, Sister Sosa told me that God said this. It was like God's telling her something all the time. And he just kind of, frankly, he got a little bit tired of it. So he thought he'd test her. He went to her one day. He said, Sister, said, you're all the time hearing from God. He said, I want you to pray for me. I want you to go talk to God and then come back and tell me what he says. She said, well, sure, Pastor. What, what do you want me to pray about? He said, you said, there's a little something in my mind I've been struggling with. I want you to go to God and I want you to ask him what my terrible sins were as a young man. And then I want you to come back and tell me what God says. He said, I'll see if she really hears from God or not. She can tell me what that was. A few days later, he saw her and he said, have you been praying, sister? She said, yes, yes, I pray every day. Have you heard from the Lord lately? Yes, I have. She said, did you talk to the Lord about me? Yeah. Well, what did he tell you about my sin? She said, he said he don't remember. 
Huh? He said he don't remember. You do. But he didn't. She really did hear from God, didn't she? So I'm going to leave you where we started. The God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants and we're going to rebuild. You have no property or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. Devil, we're done with you. God is going to give us success. We're going to rebuild. Devil, you don't have any place here. We're bringing you this struggling marriage that the devil says is over. We're bringing you these crippled finances that the devil says he has finally wiped us out. We're done. We're bringing you these broken bodies that the devil says are going to die. And we're saying to you instead, it's not what God said. We're saying to you instead, God said we're going to have success. God said that the latter will be greater than the former. God said to tell you between the time of our burnout until we're into our new glory that you don't have any right or claim or property or history or anything else in our life and we bind you devil the next time you run after me I'm going to treat you like what? an egg sucking dog and I'm going to use the name of Jesus to send you fleeing. You cannot resist the name of my Jesus. Somebody say amen. Nehemiah's determination is what takes the burning and the burnout to greater glory than it's ever seen. That's your life. That's what this 10 year anniversary is all about. The Holy Spirit reminding somebody. You say, Pastor, for the last 10 years, I've been tearing up this temple. For the past 10 years, I've been tearing up it. And Jesus says, Let me show you a picture of who you were, but now let me show you a picture of who I'm going to make you. Stand to your feet. This. This building that you're standing in right now, it may not be the temple of Jerusalem, right? But it stands here today as a monument to the glory and the power and the provision of our God who is using it today to remind us of the success that he has for us. You are standing in a physical monument. Of this word. I, Pastor, I need to see something tangible. I need to see something that I can wrap my arms around. All right. Grab a seat. There it is. Where you're standing right now. I stood with my hands in my pocket. And looked at. Charred. Burned out 
right where you're standing, I stood several times. The devil said, <laughs> you remember all those folks you baptized up in that tank? No more. Remember all those folks you got saved around them altars? No more. Remember all those weddings that you were able to perform? No more. No, devil. I see something different in my mind. I feel something different in my spirit. You're standing is in you're standing, literally standing in a monument that testifies of his grace and glory and provision. If in faith you'll lay claim today to Nehemiah's determination. Who am I talking to? They say, man, I feel it in my spirit. Today is the day. There's going to be a breakthrough in my life. God wants me to lay claim. God is saying that he wants to spark something in my spirit. It's something that's been down there that's just, it's just been smoldering, but something's catching fire. This burnout, this burnout shed. I feel like God is, is going to take this thing and build something beautiful and glorious, full of purpose, full of vision. Is it your word? Is that your word? If it's your word, then come down here and just stand around the front and throw both of your hands up in the air. Come on, hurry, come on.